Fatherhood is a high calling in the Bible. And maybe in the future we will maybe preach on fatherhood or, or motherhood on Mother's Day or Father's Day. It just makes sense. It fits. Uh, today we're not going to do that. Um, but I do think our passage somewhat relates. And we do have a special gift for the fathers here. So even if you don't come to our church normally, if you're just visiting, we have uh, some special uh, Zoe merch. It's not really Zoe merch. It's not branded. I think we got it on Amazon in bulk. But uh, we have something for you. Uh, so if you're a father, we got you. All right, let's get into it. We're in the book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible. We've been in Jude for a couple of months now. And uh, at Zoe, we just preach through books of the Bible. That's all we do. Okay, so nothing too fancy. We don't have like the most creative series or whatever. Uh, we just go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we've been in Jude, which is only one chapter for a couple months. I think we have a couple more weeks after this. We're in verses 20 through 21. Uh, but by way of context, um, let me start in verse 17. That's the beginning of this section. Let me just read to 21, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Okay, so Jude 17. Jude 17. Jude writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Verse 20, this is our text. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is the Word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, your love truly is amazing. And we see it demonstrated most clearly in the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, whom you sent to die for our sins. God, we know from your word that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because of who we are. It wasn't because of our good deeds, our obedience, our supposed righteousness. God, the only reason you love us is because... You love us because you are love, because you are loving. It's who you are. And God, I pray that as we look at your word today, even as we think about Father's Day, God, that we would remember that you are a loving father. And I pray, God, that you would help us above anything else today to keep ourselves, to strive to be in the love of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The year was 1960, and the renegade scientist Harry Harlow was trying to make a point scientifically. He wanted to prove something scientifically. What he wanted to prove was that love is an important thing between parents and children. Scientifically, he wanted to prove that love is an important thing. It doesn't sound very scientific, but he wanted to prove this, that love is an important thing between parents and their kids. Again, it was 1960, so it might surprise you. But at this time, it was pretty common understanding among the uh, psychological establishment that love and parental affection from a mother or a father to a child was, at best, Not that good and at worst, actually harmful for the child. In fact, the head of the American Psychological Association said, quote, when you're tempted to pet your child, 
Remember that mother love is a dangerous instrument. Officially, they printed pamphlets out that said things like, never kiss a baby and don't rock or play with children. Harry Harlow set out to prove that the common wisdom, that the establishment teaching had got it terribly wrong. He wanted to prove that love is important using science. He wanted to show that nature itself taught that biologically children need their mother's love and affection. So what he did was he set up all these experiments with baby monkeys. That's how he was going to demonstrate it. And what he did was he had these baby monkeys. He took them away from their own mothers and he put them in these like boxes or cages. These experiments were kind of cruel, but that was kind of the point. He put them in these cages with like a wire mother that had the the milk that they needed. Okay. And what he wanted to prove with this was that they didn't just need the milk for nourishment. They actually needed the relationship with the mother. So they had this wire mother that was not a mother at all that had the milk in a bottle. And then they had a doll monkey mother that was there in the box as well. And the baby monkeys, what they did was they would go to the wire mother for milk and then they would run away and go to the cloth mother for hugs and affection, or at least that's what they were trying to do. And he kept upping the experiment more and more. So he put a catapult inside the mother so that whenever the monkey tried to, the baby monkey tried to hug the, you know, the mother, it would throw it away, like throw it across the box. But they would still, the baby monkeys would still, even though there were peers around, they would still try to go to what they saw was their mother. Experiment after experiment showed that the head of the APA was wrong. Love actually seemed to be pretty important. In fact, even necessary. Now, okay, last week we looked at verses 17 through 19, and in these verses, Jude switched his focus. So if you've been here, you know that he's been talking a lot. The bulk of the letter is about the problems in the church, talking about false teaching, false teachers, the kind of people who have infiltrated the church, who have watered down what it's really supposed to be about, who have caused people, uh, inadvertently or not, to wander away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is just a few decades after Jesus, but already people are wandering away from the true gospel and the truth of God's word. And it leads to ruin. He's talked about judgment. He's talked about apostasy. He's talked about blasphemy. And really, that's all he's been talking about. So we've said this in the past few weeks. Jude is kind of a downer. Okay, you're not coming here to get pumped up. You're more coming here to get warned about how bad things could possibly go. But in verses 17 through 19, In verse 17 in particular, Jude switches his focus. He begins to address the true believers in the congregation, and he wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage us, okay, the true Christians, not the false teachers. And he starts by reminding them and us that this was to be expected. The prophets of old, the apostles, they had warned that things would get bad in the church, that the sheepfold would attract wolves at some point. Don't be surprised that the church has hypocrites in it. Don't be disillusioned when people act in a way that's contradictory to what Jesus was all about. Don't be surprised even when the sheep bite, because even the sheep are sinners, saved or not. And yet, despite all this, Jude still loves the church. And that's kind of the note that we ended on last week. We focus on that word that he keeps on using, one of Jude's favorites, beloved. He writes to a church that is mixed at best with wheat and tares, sheep and wolves, 
And he calls them beloved, verse 17. And then here again in verse 20. And if there's one dividing line that separates the sheep from the wolves and the wheat from the tares, the true believers from false teachers, it's love. Do you put yourself first or do you put other people first? And we can't gloss over this idea. Jude won't let us. Our passage today, it actually builds on this idea. It majors on the theme of love because love isn't just important to Christianity. It's actually necessary. I mean, what is the first and greatest commandment of the law? The first commandment in the law of God, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus adds, the second greatest is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you read in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the first fruit is love. In the scriptures, when it talks about the three theological virtues at the center of our religion, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul writes, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. By this, Jesus said, all will know that you are my disciples by your love. So yeah, we should love God. That's the difference between a real Christian and someone who is a bad actor in the church, someone who's faking it, someone who's in it for themselves. It's love. We should love God. We should love the church. We should love other Christians, even in their failings. We should even love our enemies. That's pure, unadulterated biblical religion. But even this isn't exactly what Jude is getting at in our passage today. He's going to go beyond this. And this might be a little surprising because... I mean, if you take a step back in Jude, right? I said it, we talked about apostasy and blasphemy and, and false teaching in the church, heresy, all these different things. Judas talked about the need to contend for the faith, the need to fight. He's been talking about uh, judgment and what's going to happen if you go the wrong way. I mean, the letter of Jude really is a call to wake up. It's not supposed to be really like an uplifting letter, so to speak. But then he says in verse 21, as he gets ready to land the plane, He says, what I actually want you to do isn't to get out your heresy hunting gear. Okay, it's not to do some kind of like grand thing against the false teachers. Rather, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. How are we going to win the fight of faith? How are we going to preserve true Christianity? How are we going to deal with the very real problems of false teaching and compromise and divisiveness? Keep yourselves in the love of God. It's not our love. It's God's love. Might be the first thing you ever learn as a child if you come to church. God loves you. Does it sound too simple? This is exactly where Jude goes. Now, you might be thinking, wow, long intro. I always have long intros. Someone timed me the other week, which I don't know if I appreciate or not. They said it was 17 minutes. Pretty long. This was especially long even for me. But the reason it's so long is because of how this passage is constructed. I actually started the exposition already. Because if you notice, in our two verses today, there are four verbs. Four things that need to happen. Four action words. Okay? So there's building, there's praying, there's keeping, and there's waiting. That's what we're supposed to do. But in the, in the original Greek, it's not four individual verbs that are all the same. In the original Greek, only one of them is a true imperative. 
a command. Only one of them is a command. Keep. The other three are participles, and they act as supporters. You don't have to really know that uh, the grammar of that, but as long as you understand how it's functioning, the other three commands just teach us how to do the one thing that Jude wants to focus on, which is to keep ourselves in the love of God. And this simply means stationing ourselves in a way in which we can experience it. So right off the bat, don't get me wrong, it's not about earning God's love. Okay, It's not about making God love us. We can't earn his love. Okay, We can't make him love us. We don't have the power to do that. We'll unpack this more in the message. But what it means, simply put, is we need to step into God's love and park there. Or if you want to picture it like this, imagine God's love is a waterfall. We need to step under it and stay there. We need to step under it and stay there. Don't brush this off. All of Jude has really been building up to this point. So how do we do this? The other three verbs tell us more practically and specifically how to do it, and these will be our points. Okay, so our points, three points, based around the three participles, build, pray, and wait. But I changed it up a little bit, so they all start with L. Um, you'll see how it goes. I remember I was talking to Eric about this. This, this is probably going to distract you, but maybe you'll remember. He said, what were your points again? Like live, laugh, love or something? <laughs> that, the eat, pray, love, or it's not that. But first, okay, it does start with L, learn. That's what he wants you to do, learn. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, you can stop there. Okay, verse 20 begins in the same way verse 17 does with a contrast word, but. Verse 19 describes those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Now, by contrast, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. In other words, what he's saying is simply put, we need to learn. We need to learn more. Now, let me explain. It's kind of a, a little bit to explain here. Uh, in the New Testament, the church is often metaphorically referred to as a building. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, right off the bat, this is a confusing thing because for us, oftentimes as the church, we meet in a building. So we talk about the church building as if it were the church. Now, this is a little easier for us at Zoe because we don't own the building. We know that if we leave here, it's not Zoe Church. It's the Methodist building, but it can still be confusing. So first of all, we have to establish that the word church doesn't mean a place to go. Okay, it means a people who have gathered. And it's right there in the Greek, right? Ekklesia, that's the word for church. Literally, it means the called out ones. People who have been called out of a different life into a new life, okay? An old life into a new life, however you want to put it, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. The way the word is often translated, it simply means the assembly, the gathering of God's people. Church is a word that refers to a group of people. Okay, so church is the people, and yet metaphorically, the people are oftentimes talked about in terms of buildings and architecture. Okay, so it's not the building around us, it's the people. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the building's foundation. He's not talking about rock or concrete or anything like that. He's saying the foundation of our lives should be Jesus. Peter uses a similar Metaphor in First Peter 2, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, we are each individually in the church like living stones. Together, we're just rocks. But well, I mean, individually, we're just rocks. But when we come together, we are a spiritual house where God can be worshiped. Now, what does Jude say? He says, build yourselves. He uses a word that was used for building buildings. He says, build yourselves up. He wants you to think of a construction site. Think about remodeling and repairs and upgrading. Think about how a house looks with a new coat of paint. Think about the difference when you finally replace that old leaky faucet with a brand new stainless steel one. Think about how much better new carpet feels. The church that is us should constantly be under construction, or you could say renovation. This means we should be growing individually and helping each other to grow. And Jude is even more specific than that. If you look at the verse, he says, building yourselves up in what? In your most holy faith, in our most holy faith. When Jude speaks of faith here, he's talking about it in the same way he was talking about contending for the faith. He's not talking about our personal subjective trust in God. He's talking about the body of teachings, He's talking about the doctrine that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about what Christians are supposed to believe. So what he's saying here is we need to build ourselves up in the truth of God's word and the things that are right and what we're supposed to know. Our knowledge of the faith should be continually under renovation, getting remodeled, repaired, and really upgraded. Error should be removed. Okay, things should get deeper. We should know more. So let me ask you. This is a simple question, but would you say that you personally have been growing in the faith? It doesn't have to be like every day, but just generally speaking, is there a consistent pattern of growth as a Christian? Have you learned more? Do you know more? Do you understand better? Or are you stagnant? You know, I read a quote once, uh, quote once that always, um, stuck with me. It was from a Jewish man and he was talking about how surprised he was that a lot of Christians don't seem to know that much about Christianity. And even more surprising than that, they don't seem to want to know that much about Christianity. He said, and I quote, one thing I noticed about evangelicals is that they do not read. They do not read the Bible. They do not read the great Christian thinkers. They have never heard of Aquinas. If they're Presbyterian, they've never read the founders of Presbyterianism. I do not understand that. As a Jew, that's confusing to me. The commandment of study is so deep in Judaism that we immerse ourselves in study. God gave us a brain. Aren't we to use it in his service? When I walk into an evangelical Christian's home and see a total of 30 books, most of them bestsellers, I do not understand. I have bookcases of Christian books, and I am a Jew. Why do I have more Christian books than 98% of the Christians in America? That is so bizarre to me, end quote. Super funny. I was trying to look up the exact words of this, this quote, and I found it on Facebook, and there were all these comments underneath, and the top comment was by a Christian who said, you know why we don't read? It's because we have the Holy Spirit, unlike you. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but uh, I understand the point. I understand the point. But we have to remember that the Holy Spirit, one, wrote the Bible. How many Christians have never read the Bible one time? And if you haven't, I'm not trying to guilt trip you. But what I am saying, I want to encourage you, is if we're going to base our lives on this book, on what God has revealed, on what the Holy Spirit has written, 
Shouldn't we at least read it one time? So one, God wrote, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Two, the Holy Spirit guided many believers besides ourselves throughout history. And these believers wrote down the fruit of what they learned. Okay, we don't need to reinvent the wheel all the time. We don't need to start over from scratch when it comes to theology. There are so many Christians who had the Holy Spirit who wrote down what they learned so that we could learn too. We could stand on their shoulders as it were. Now, you don't have to read every book out there. You don't have to read the Bible in a year. You don't have to read at any certain pace. But all of us, we should be trying to grow in our understanding of the scriptures, what they say, what they mean. We should be trying to advance in our grasp of theology. We should try to approach it like building and renovating our own house. I mean, there are basically 10 categories of systematic theology. It depends on kind of how you want to do it. But if you open up a systematic theology book, there will be basically 10 categories. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, there'll be like a category of Christology where it talks about everything that has to do with Jesus Christ or or something about ecclesiology from ecclesia, everything that has to do with the church. And you can grow in your understanding of how different passages fit together, what the Bible teaches as a whole, so on and so forth. 10 categories. Okay, now if you think about a house, there are certain rooms that every house has, right? Or should have. There's like a place to sleep, place to eat, place to use the restroom, etc. Imagine if you were totally missing one of those in your house, it wouldn't be livable. Some of us, when it comes to theology, we're, we're functioning with like totally like missing rooms in certain places. We don't know anything about certain parts of what the Bible says. When it comes to our house, our theological house, so to speak, if you get what I'm saying, what are you missing? What needs work? What do you need to learn more about? What is totally a hole in your understanding? There's 66 books of the Bible and the Bible is long. Okay. It is very long. It's not an ongoing series though. Okay, it's not like there's going to be like another one coming out next week and then another one in five years where it just keeps getting longer and longer. The book is done. The series is over. So if you read one book a week for the next year, you'll have read 52 out of 66. That's pretty good. I mean, some of you, hopefully some of you are still doing the Bible in a year. I don't know if you are. I'm a little scared to ask even. Um, I don't know if you're doing that, but that's good too. You can read at whatever pace, whatever plan you want. The point is you need to learn. And this makes total sense in the context of Jude. There are false teachers who are teaching things that maybe seem right on the surface. They sound plausible. They make good arguments. If you don't know, then you won't know if what they're saying is true or not. If you don't know your Bible, if you don't know your theology, if you're not sound in your doctrine. And this is corporate language here. Not business corporate, but I mean group corporate. He's saying build yourselves up. We need to do this together. It's not just you individually hole up in your study. We should study together at church. That's why we're going to do certain things. Like we're going to do the theology class. We're going to try to get that going and kind of revving up for the near future and maybe hopefully ongoingly. That's why we have women's Bible studies. That's why we want to talk about doctrine and things like that. Talk about the Bible while we encourage a Bible and a year plan because we need to learn together. And you can foster this too. You can read a book with somebody You can join a Bible study. You can come to the class. You can make these things a priority. And since it's Father's Day, fathers, let me single you out. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, you are specifically called by the scripture to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction 
Okay, you're supposed to teach your kids. It doesn't mean you have to teach them math. Okay, it says in the Lord. You teach them about God. And I know it's my temptation, at least. Maybe I'll just speak for me because I don't have the shirt, right? But I'll speak for me. It's my temptation to to punt this to Christine, to my wife sometimes. Like, oh, sure, mommy will read the Bible to you guys. And it's fine if she does that sometimes. But it's important for fathers to take this responsibility seriously, that we need to instruct. We need to help our kids learn. That's part of our stewardship. And of course, mothers and grandparents and teachers in the church and pastors have a role too. I have less of an excuse because I'm my kid's pastor as well. I'm like, Uncle Eric will read to you and teach you about this. I know I need to do better. If you know you need to do better, today's a good day to start, Father's Day. Now, before we move on, remember that this call to build is not the main command of the passage. Before you're like, okay, I'm just going to learn about all these different things. Remember that there's a specific focus to, to this passage the main command is to keep ourselves in the love of God and to learn it's supporting that. It's supporting that. So here's more specific application. We need to learn about God's love. And if there's something where I think we maybe have a hole in our theology, a lot of us, it's actually when it comes to God's love. We hear about it all the time. It's talked about. It's sung about. We heard about it when we were kids. We think that we know it. And because we think we know it, we don't actually study it. I think a lot of us, we have a superficial understanding of God's love. And sometimes that leads us to think that God's love itself is superficial. I don't want to hear about God's love. I remember I had a friend who said if they go to a church for the first time and they're talking about God's love, they know that church isn't solid. They're just like foo-foo, like good feelings. You know, they want to hear about God's wrath. They want to hear that they're going to hell. That's what they told me. One of my kids, I won't say which one, but she has this funny habit of saying, I know to everything that we say, even when she asks a question. And I think she said one time, what time is it? And I said, oh, it's 2.14. And she says, yeah, I know. So why'd you ask me then? Look at it, look at it yourself, dude. Uh, there's one thing everyone thinks that they know in church. And maybe not everyone, but I've heard it enough. It's God's love. It's so fundamental. I, I, I know all about God's love. Let's go on to the meat. Okay, I don't need the milk anymore. Let's learn about predestination or dispensationalism or different atonement theories. The truth is, the more we learn about God's love, the more profound it is. And the reason why Jude wants us to focus on God's love is because he knows this. He's not saying just focus on good feelings. He knows that if you take a deep dive into God's love, this is what we need more than anything else. And, you know, the thing is, when you learn more about other stuff in the Bible, like when you do learn about God's wrath and God's judgment, that helps us understand the depth of God's love. Now you know what Jesus had to go through in love to save you. What he had to bear. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross he didn't have to. He did it. He, he wanted to for us. The more you learn about God's greatness, the more you'll grasp the value of God's love. The deeper you are theologically, the more God's love will move you. And this leads me to the next point. Lean, lean. One time I went to this conference and um, I remember it was not about God's love at all, but it was one of the first times I think I heard really deep Bible teaching. And it was kind of about God's greatness, kind of in a general sense. And uh, I remember I, I learned so much at this at this conference, and it really stuck with me. And then I went to church the following Sunday, um, and I went to prayer meeting. And I remember we were praying, and it just struck me as we were praying 
that God, who is so great, right? He's infinite. He's so far beyond us. He existed from eternity past. He will exist forever. He is much bigger than we could ever comprehend. He listens to us when we pray to him as if we were the only people in the world. And I remember I got a little like choked up in the moment. I understood God's love better because I understood God better. This is why we should lean on him. And this is what Jude says in verse 20. He says, and praying in the Holy Spirit. The second way to keep yourself in God's love is to pray to him. Now, let's talk about the second part of that first. What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Some people argue that it's praying in tongues or something that only certain people can do. I don't think that that is what is going on here. I know that at this time, people did speak in tongues and things like that. But if you look at other passages that use the phrase in the spirit for other things like joy in the spirit, Romans 14 or speech in the spirit, first Corinthians 12, the pattern is things directed by the spirit, meaning that the focus is on God's will. You're not praying in the flesh. You're praying in the spirit. You're thinking about what does God want from this? How can I glorify God in this? Ephesians 6, 18 is probably the most similar passage to Jude 20. And here what Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the spirit and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Paul isn't talking about some sort of different, like special charismatic experience in prayer. He's talking about regular prayer, every prayer, every request, just praying at all times for all the saints. He's just saying you got to be focused on God and not us. So the second thing we're supposed to do is simply Pray. Just pray. You know, I don't normally like to share about my kids from the pulpit because I know it's going to come back to bite me. But I will share this. My son is one years old. Uh, and he, he's not really talking a lot. Uh, he says some words. He babbles a lot. And he says some words, but I don't think he knows what it means. The main word that he, he says is the word amen. Um, I'm a pastor, so, you know, it's... Just, <laughs> Uh, it's probably just osmosis. It just comes out of me. Um, yeah, actually, he doesn't know what it means at all. In fact, I know he doesn't know what it means because of how he uses the word. So while we're praying before we eat, okay, he loves to eat. While we're praying before we eat, we have the food right out of arm's reach from him, but we don't give it to him yet. And we say, okay, Levi, we're going to pray now. So then we pray. And he doesn't really know what we're doing. We're like closing our eyes. We're like saying some words he doesn't know. And then we say amen, and the second amen is said, he gets to eat. Okay, so for him, amen means let's eat, right? It's time to eat. So lately, while we pray, he's yelling amen the whole time. He's trying to end the prayer early, right? He's like, amen, come on, what's going on here? He's like yelling it out. Amen, amen, amen. Now, he's one, so it's okay, I guess. He doesn't really know what he's saying. It's okay that he doesn't get prayer. But here's a question for all of us. Okay, something to consider. Do we get prayer? Or is it just words? I mean, yeah, we know we're supposed to pray. We close our eyes when the pastor or worship leader prays. We probably do say grace before our meals. But does it register what we're doing in the moment? Or is it just so like habitual that we're just saying some stuff? It's just rote, but it means something else, really. It just means this is the thing I do before I pray or everyone else is doing it at church. So I just kind of bow my head and think about something else. Or are we actually going to the Lord? See, what we're doing is we're 
speaking to the God of the universe. And yet, for a lot of Christians, praying is a chore. And it is something we're supposed to do. We are commanded to do it. But for a lot of us, it's, it's drudgery. Something we don't enjoy in any way. We treat it as a burden and not a privilege. Now, let me just say, prayer can be difficult. Because laziness is a real thing. Okay, we are people who struggle with weakness. I struggle with prayer. I'm sure a lot of us struggle in prayer. Even the godliest people in church history have struggled with prayer. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that he never wanted to write a book on prayer because he felt like his life just could never match up to where he wanted it to be. Prayer is hard. It's why in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, train or discipline yourself for godliness. Even if we know prayer is a privilege intellectually, day to day, it could be hard to really carve out that time and to close our eyes and to focus and to spend time with God. So laziness can be part of it. Just busyness can be part of it. Second, though, we need to understand that prayer isn't just a privilege. It's a necessity. And this is how it fits in with Jude. Hey, Jude isn't laying a burden down on the people. Like, hey, you better start praying. What's wrong with you guys? False teachers don't pray. You guys need to pray. That's not the attitude or the approach that Jude takes. Rather, it's more that we're depriving ourselves if we don't. This is part of how we keep ourselves in the love of God. This is part of how we receive from God, not how we give. You know, I was reading about Hudson Taylor, the missionary, and uh, there are all these accounts of things that he did and how much he sacrificed to share the gospel in China. This is way back in the day. And his efforts have borne a lot of fruit. But some people who were traveling with him, they, they share this, just kind of like a little anecdote, but it really says a lot. They said that sometimes they would be traveling around, like in different parts of like rural China or whatever. They would travel all day. It was like backbreaking travel. It was exhausting. And then they would finally get to like a place where they could stay and it'd just be one room where the entire group has to just sleep in this room together. Okay. And they said they would be exhausted. It would be past midnight. They're just trying to get a little sleep before the next day. And then it would be like 2 a.m. And Hudson Taylor would kind of corner off part of the room and he would light a little match and he would take out his Bibles in two volumes. There are these tiny Bibles that didn't fit into one book. And he would pray for two hours. He'd pray from 2 to 4 a.m. And that was like day in, day out, every single day. Now, the wrong lesson to draw from this is this is what you got to do if you want to be godly. You need to pray two hours a day. The more hours you pray, the more godly you are. That's how you show off. It should convict us what Hudson Taylor did. But really, the lesson of what he was doing was he was showing us how much he needed and wanted to spend time with God. He wasn't doing it to show off to people. He wasn't doing it to prove his godliness. He wasn't trying to meet a goal of how many hours. He knew that for all the work he was doing, he needed to draw strength from God. That's when he would recharge That was his spiritual rest. It's kind of like what Martin Luther used to say. He said he would pray two hours every day, and when he was really busy, he would pray three. Prayer is about dependence. So we got to get this out of our head. God doesn't need us at all. Okay? When we don't pray, it's not like we're depriving God of, you know, the pleasure of our company, which he so desperately wants. God, rather, is inviting us to seek him. The pleasure is all ours. 
Prayer is about a relationship with God when we don't deserve that relationship. It's about leaning on him, knowing that he's sovereign and in control, that he hears us and he cares for us. The Bible is replete with the benefits and blessings of prayer. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. This is God we're talking about. Now, some of us might feel like we want to pray. It's just we don't know what to say. We're scared to pray. We don't feel worthy. We know we're sinners. We know we messed up. We feel guilty about not praying for so long. So now we're not sure if God will even want to have us pray now because we've been gone so long. Like, look who showed up after all these years. Prayer is one way we keep ourselves in the love of God. But make no mistake, it's not how we earn it. A relationship with God isn't founded upon our spiritual disciplines, our obedience, or our righteousness, or who we are at all. Christian, our relationship with God is founded on Christ. So if you're a Christian, then you can go to God, not because of your obedience, but because of his, Christ's perfect obedience, his righteousness, who he is. See, when we become Christians, we place our faith in Jesus. We trust him and his righteousness. We confess that we're sinners, that we don't deserve heaven or eternal life or forgiveness but we trust in Jesus. He died for our sins. He paid for our ticket into heaven with his own life. And if you trust in Jesus, you can pray to God in Jesus's name. You get that? In Jesus's name, amen. Anytime, any place, any condition. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I quoted, I talked about him a little bit, a little while ago. He said, prayer in many ways is the supreme expression of our faith in God. So if you want to get your spiritual pulse, just look at your praying. And then he said, we should go into his presence as a child goes to his father. We do it with reverence and godly fear, of course, but we should go with a childlike confidence and simplicity. Confidence because of the cross of Christ. See, guys, prayer itself, the very fact that we can come before the holy, holy God who was and who is and who is to come as children to a father That's God's love. See, the very act of praying, beyond even asking for things or or talking about things, the very act that you can go before God anytime, that's God's love. There is no more tangible reminder that God loves you than when you remember that he hears you. As if you're the only person in the world, like I said, Augustine, he once said that God is infinite. God's love is infinite. He doesn't spread it among all the different children that he has. When he loves you as a child, he loves you as if you were the only child that he had. We don't pray to God to tell him what to do. We pray to God uh, because his plan is perfect. We pray to keep ourselves in the love of God. This leads to the third point quickly now. <clears throat> Look forward. Okay, so if you forgot what the points are, it's live, laugh, and love. Just kidding. Learn more about God. Lean on him in prayer. Go to his love. And then third, look forward. And I mean, live in anticipation. Okay, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the main imperative. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have you ever looked forward to something? Christmas. Maybe you were a child. You look forward to a trip. Maybe it was the last day of school, something like that. You know how the anticipation dominates your thoughts. It's all you can think about. You're looking at the clock and you know that the anticipation is part of what makes the thing that you're looking forward to so special. It's part of the enjoyment, the entire process of it. 
You know, I, I have a friend who had a really difficult upbringing. I won't share too much about it. Um, but his parents were super like strict and they were really into like worldly success and they drove him really hard. And he became a Christian when he was in high school and he got really serious about God. And he was a very gifted person. He was very smart. That's why his parents, I think, had so many expectations of him. He was a good athlete. He was very smart. They pushed him in everything, okay, every sport, everything. But he became a Christian. He he applied all of his gifts to that. So he studied a lot. He, he was serving a lot. He could do everything. And then when he was in college, he was like, you know, I think I want to be a pastor. And his parents flipped out. They're like, we didn't invest all this time and money into you so you could become a pastor and throw away your life. And they they were kind of a little, I don't even want to, I don't want to hate on parents on Father's Day, but they were like threatening him. They said that we're going to ruin your life if you do this. We're going to ruin your wife's life. I don't know how they're going to do that, um, but they're very rich. So maybe they had some means that I don't know about. So he he pivoted and he just decided to go to med school. He became a doctor and he, he was a, he's a little older than me. He became a doctor. Once he became a doctor, though, he couldn't shake that. I, I want to be a pastor still. I feel called to the ministry. So after he was a little bit older, he's in his 20s now, he has a good career, he's very successful. He told his parents, even if you don't want me to be a pastor, I'm going to do it. I'm going to seminary. And he went to master's about the same time as me. I'd known him before, during, and after. And I remember one time I was standing in front of the library with him at master's. And uh, I was probably joking around. Right? Not even John MacArthur himself can stop me from who I am. Um, but I was joking around, and I remember the professors were like, must be nice being you. And he it was a he, he stopped for a second and he said, "You know, Jesse, I've been wanting to be here forever, and it's crazy that I'm actually here." I never forgot what he said because it just like hit him in that moment. He had just wanted to be in seminary for a decade, for years, and finally he was just here. He was doing what he had dreamt of doing. We need to pursue the love of God intellectually through learning, yes. We need to pursue the love of God relationally through leaning on him in prayer. We need to actually have a relationship with God and cultivate that. But we also need to pursue the love of God with anticipation, knowing that there's actually more to come. That right now we see him in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Because look what Jude says. He says, waiting. Waiting is what we should do. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's talking about the day we see Jesus face to face. Now, it's interesting what he says here. It sounds like he's saying that salvation is in the future. We're like waiting for mercy, waiting for eternal life. And if you're here, you might be thinking, wait, this doesn't totally make sense. Like, I thought that if I believe in Jesus, then I'm saved, right? That That's why I can pray, right? Because I'm already saved. I have a relationship with God. I can approach him. So what does Jude mean? Why would we need to wait for mercy? Why would we need to wait for eternal life? Here's the deal quickly. Mercy is what happens when you don't get what you deserve. Correct? Grace is when you get what you don't deserve, right? You get a gift, something that you didn't earn. Mercy is when you do actually deserve something bad and you don't get it. So like punishment, okay, you're supposed to get punished, but you don't get punished. That's mercy. The truth is we haven't actually received judgment and punishment for our sin. Does that make sense? We haven't died yet. The world hasn't ended yet. We haven't actually gone to the judgment. We haven't stood before God. We haven't been declared guilty for all the sins that we've committed. So in a sense, we haven't fully received the reality of mercy yet. We haven't had to stand before holy God who says, you know what? You deserve hell for eternity. But because of Jesus, you're free to go. 
See what I'm saying? We haven't received that yet. We haven't stepped into eternal life yet. See, the Bible talks about salvation as something that happened in the past. It exists in the present and it also will happen in the future. In the past, salvation happened when Jesus died for our sins. He bore our transgressions on the cross and he died for us. In the present, we're saved when we turn from our sins to believe in him and we have a relationship with God. In the future, though, you'll actually receive all that salvation is. All your sins will be officially pardoned. You'll step into eternity. Faith will turn to sight. Hope will change to glad fruition. And love will never end. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Part of it is we keep ourselves in the anticipation of it. We know that it's coming. We anticipate what it'll be like to finally receive it in its fullness on that day. We look forward to when we'll see him face to face. We think about what it's going to be like, so we can't wait. The truth is we easily get caught up in just doing stuff day to day. We don't look ahead. And then beyond this, some of us even dread the future. Like maybe short term, we dread how we're getting older and our bodies are aging. We despair at how society seems to be declining so rapidly. We think things are just getting worse and worse and worse. We don't look forward to what's to come. Some of us, we fear death. We're not sure about what's going to happen in the end. But as for the Christian, while the world may get worse and worse, that is a very real possibility. And while aging and death might be unpleasant to say the least, understand that the right perspective is to always remember that the best is yet to come. I shared a story once about a woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and she was pretty young. She only had a few months to live, but because she was diagnosed and she knew what was going to happen, she was afforded kind of the rare privilege, I guess you could say, of planning her own funeral. So one of the things she did was she met with her pastor. They talked about what songs she wanted to be sung, scripture to be read, how they were even going to display the casket. And she said she wanted to have her open casket with, you know, her Bible in her arm. And then she said she also wanted a fork to be placed in her hand. The Bible, he understood, right? But he was like, what's the deal with the fork? And the woman explained, well, growing up, I went to a lot of church potlucks. And I always remembered when they cleared the dishes, someone would always say, keep your fork. I love when they said that because it meant we were going to be served dessert. Something better was coming, chocolate cake or apple pie. So I want people to see me there in the casket with a fork in my hand. And I want them to ask, what's up with the fork? Or why does she have a fork? And I want you, pastor, to explain to them about keep your fork and how for Christians, the best is yet to come. See, okay, Jude isn't calling us to pessimism. You might think that. False teachers, false teaching, people are creeping into the church, ruining everything. He's not calling us to pessimism when it comes to church. He also isn't calling us to optimism as if blind positivity was the way. Just look on the bright side. That might be part of it. Rather, he's calling us to realism. For the Christian, the best truly is yet to come, and it is a sure thing. It's a sure thing. Christians should be the least fearful people on earth. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18, and perfect love is what we're looking forward to. At the very end of this book, what does Jude say? Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
I know some of us might not know where we're at. We don't know what we believe or if we believe what Christianity teaches. Some of us, we're not sure what we're waiting for. If you turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus, perfect love is what you have to look forward to. To paraphrase a famous pastor, our greatest fear is to be known and not loved. Like if people saw what we were really like, they would reject us. But in the gospel, what we have is a promise that God knows everything about you. He knows your deepest, darkest sins. And yet because of Christ and in Christ, he loves us. We'll close here. Going back to Harlow, he did so many of these experiments and he finally won. Okay, he proved his point. He was a scientist who went into the establishment and disrupted everything. Things finally got changed. And now it is a given that parental affection is important. You see this in all different ways. You see like skin to skin when the baby is born, all that. But the sad reality was Harry Harlow was, for all his thoughts and theories about love, not very good at love. In fact, he was known for being cold, known for being mean, a difficult person to work with. He had four kids of his own through multiple marriages. And all they remember, ironically, when people were kind of looking up his life story, was how absent and distant he was. He loved the idea of love, but he didn't know it himself. You know, I know for some of us, Father's Day is a painful day, right? Maybe you lost your father uh, or your father wasn't loving in the way fathers should be, whatever it might be. Whatever your experience was or is, know this. No father is perfect except for one. And maybe you've been a professing Christian for a long time. You've sung about love, talked about love. You heard about love for years, but you haven't kept yourself in the love of God. You didn't even know the Bible said something like that. You haven't even had a category for fighting tooth and nail to keep yourself in the knowledge of God's love. You haven't thought that there's more just beneath the surface. And in fact, it goes on forever into eternity. You haven't leaned on that relationship. You've been trying to do things on your own strength. And you've been dreading the future instead of looking forward to the best, God's perfect love that is to come. First John 3 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Meanwhile, beloved, what we got to do in the face of false teaching, false teachers, heresy, blasphemy, all the problems and sins of church, all the struggles in our lives, all the things we need to do. Meanwhile, the one thing that we need to do is to keep ourselves in the love of God.